would be here today. Yes, I am a girl, and I'm going to teach you this morning, believe it or not. I'm going to try anyway. Um, I don't have anything catchy to start with. Last week, Pastor Joe started with the song, was it Hank Williams? Family Tradition. There is not a day that goes by this week that I have not sang that song. Seriously. Like, that is a catchy song. I didn't have anything to start with until, um, if you didn't know, the team, the, the band, we are family, and we're so close, and only family can rib you, like when I said this morning and I came in, so I got a new shirt for today, and Carl said, it looks like some drapes I had. I'm like, thanks. But Joe, you'll be excited to know that when the team was encouraging me this morning, they said, I can't do any worse than you. So that's my opener. (laughs) Thanks for the laugh. So uh, my name is Megan Mooney, and I'm really excited to be here with you this morning. And if you have not been here over 25 weeks, we have been exploring the life of David. And we started all the way back in 1 Samuel 16, and today we're ending up in 2 Samuel 14. Over the last couple of weeks, we've gone through what are really probably the most intense, some of the most intense parts of the David story. We had um, the infamous story of David and Bathsheba, and then um, how God was displeased and he sent the prophet Nathan to David to uh, call him out and get in his face, um, and then David's repentance. And then especially over the last couple of weeks, uh, the story has been tough. I know it's been tough for my brother Joe to preach on. Um, It's been tough for maybe some of us to hear, but we've learned about David's children and this complete and total dysfunction in his family, um, which includes his son Amnon raping his sister. That's great, right? Um, And then we have the other brother, Absalom, who loves his sister so much, but it's kind of twisted that he goes and he kills, as we learned last week, he killed his brother Amnon after plotting and scheming for a couple of years. So that brings us to where we are today in this story, 2 Samuel 14. And I am not going to read the whole chapter to you. I'm going to give you a Reader's Digest version, (laughs) so to speak. But here we are, right? So at this point in time, um, Absalom has been gone for three years. And Joab, who is not only the captain of David's armies, but he is also the king's nephew, he notices, because he's in the court of the king a lot, he notices that David seems to really miss his son. So what Joab does is he enlists the help of a wise woman from a town about 16 kilometers outside of Jerusalem called Tekoa. He enlists the help of this wise woman to manipulate David into bringing Absalom home. And the manipulation sounds like this. He gives her the words and he comes up and concocts this story that's completely fake to manipulate David. And how it manipulates him is it's very similar to what's been going on in David's own family. There's fratricide, which is one brother is killing another brother. And then there's like mourning and there's a parent that's grieved and all of this kind of stuff. And because Joab is smart, he's a manipulator, he sends a woman to David. Even if she's old and wise, it's still a woman. And, and David has pity on her because she, part of this ruse is that she's a widow and nobody's going to carry on my husband's legacy, blah, blah, blah. I did just blah, blah, blah scripture. Uh, but blah, blah, blah. So David, finally, after being coaxed and cajoled, he agrees to bring Absalom home. But then because she's wise, and it's important to realize that wise, if we dig into this word right now, it means cunning. She flips the tables on David and she says, this is what you're doing to your son. So she goes on and on, and finally, David, he's not a dummy. He says, Joab kind of put you up to this, right? And she says yes, but he agrees to bring Absalom home. He tells Joab, go get him, but there's a caveat. 
he refuses to see him. David says, I don't want to lay eyes on him. So for two years, Absalom is home, and he doesn't get to see his dad, but he's really frustrated in this point in time, and he lashes out just like a spoiled brat. He really is so spoiled. This shouldn't surprise us at all. Absalom gets frustrated, and he reaches out to Joab, and he's like, go get my dad. Come, I want to go see my dad. But Joab completely ignores him, which I think is interesting. I don't know why Joab would have gone to all of this trouble to bring David home or to bring Absalom home, but then he just kind of ignores his request. So, like I said, the spoiled Roddy brat, he says to uh, his servants, go burn down his fields. It's attention-seeking behavior, right? If you have kids, you understand this at this point in time. So he burns down his fields. But Joab comes up to him. He's like, hello, why would you burn down my fields? And (laughs) Absalom's like, look, I called for you. I sent word for you. I sent word for you to come here. And he says that you may send me to the king with this question. Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to still be there. So if the king, let me go in front of the king. If he sees any fault in me at all, let him kill me, which is pretty confident, right? Because by law, David, his son should be executed because he killed his brother. Joab says, okay, goes and he tells David, and David finally agrees to see Absalom. And it's this reunion. Absalom comes and he prostrates himself on the ground, face down on the ground in front of the king in obedience, and and father embraces the son. Father and son are reunited. We could also play reunited again at this point in time. Seems like it's a happy ending. All is well that ends well, right? I mean, okay, sure, we have some minor glossing over the fact that, once again, David doesn't hold a son accountable for doing something really, really horrible, right? There's no mention of the murder whatsoever. Um, Absalom, they never have any sort of reconciliation conversation about accountability, but at least they're back together, right? So we are going to learn, I'm not going to absolutely, aren't going to steal Joe's thunder, but um, we are going to learn that over the next couple of uh, passages into 2 Samuel 15, it is absolutely not okay. Things, if it were any way possible whatsoever, things get worse for David, which is kind of hard to believe because at this point it's been pretty bad for him. So where kind of God led me this morning um, to talk is to beg, uh, to ask this question. Is David's family really just, and I'm going to use Joe's words, these aren't mine, I would never say these words, a crappy... Dysfunctional family, or is the dysfunction symptomatic of a much larger issue at play in David's life? I mean, really, if we think about all of this nonsense that he's been going through kids rape, and there's brothers and sisters, and then there's murder, and there's manipulation I mean, is it really just that bad, or is there something else going on? And I say that we only need to go to the Word to figure out that it is symptomatic of a much larger issue in David's life. All throughout this story, between 1 Samuel 16 and 2 Samuel 14, David's life is filled with God. We learn about it from the very beginning. It's the David and God show. David and God are together. And not only does David have this wonderful relationship with God that he pursues, Scripture also goes on to tell us that David inquires of God. And he asks him what to do, especially during some really tough times of his life. Where should I go? What should I do? What should I do once I get there? How should I get there? He even, in one of the parts, he asks God a follow-up question. God gives him an answer, and he's like, okay, I have just one more question. Wouldn't you like to ask God a follow-up question sometime? I know I would. I have a follow-up question about what's happening right now. (laughs) 
but he doesn't do that. So we learn about David's relationship all through these chapters, and there are 29 between where we started and where we are today that we see this love story between the father and his son, except in three places. The first is in 1 Samuel 27. You might not remember the chapter, but you might remember Pastor Joe taught us. It's when David flees to live with the Philistines, and he is so sick of Saul, who was just constantly trying to kill him, that he loses confidence in God's promise. And he figures it's better to go and live with our sworn and mortal enemy, because at least there, maybe I'm not going to die. So during that chapter, there is nothing at all about David inquiring of God, David talking to God. God's not mentioned directly or indirectly in this part of the story at all. And the other places that we don't hear or see about David's relationship with God just happens to be what we've been talking about the past couple of weeks. It's 2 Samuel 13, 14, and even into part of 15. It's the stories of Amnon and Tamar and Absalom. God is not present at all. And my question is why? Let's go further into the symptom. The writers, when they put the Bible together, was God, like, was he kind of not good enough for this part of the story? Did he kind of get left on the editing room floor? Seriously, so why? What's happening here? Why isn't he there? Did we forget about him? And I say, no. The writers of the Bible didn't forget about him at all. At this point in David's story, I want us all to remember something, not just about David's story, but about our own lives as well. <clears throat> we have the greatest amount of sin and suffering and heartache and dysfunction as Christians in our lives when we are separated from God, which is the definition of hell. It is separation from the Father, right? And just as a heads up, in case if there's any question at all, God doesn't separate himself from us. We separate ourselves from him. How do I know that? I go back to the word. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we are told, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So if we know God is true, we know his promises are true, and he's not doing the leaving and he's not doing the forsaking, guess who is? What David's going through at this point in time and what he's about to go through, because it is going to get worse, these times produce some of the greatest heartache and dysfunction and suffering in David's entire life. And in so many other places when we know he's suffering and we know he's scared, he reaches out to God, but not in these chapters. So remember how I said this, um, the dysfunction was symptomatic? It absolutely is. It's symptomatic that David put his relationship with God on the back burner and he stopped talking to God. Not once do we read that David inquired of God, that he asked God. I mean, what would that have even sounded like at this point in the story? Say he had. God, I am so mad at my son Amnon. Did you see what he did? God, help me to have the strength to hold him accountable according to your law could have inquired of God and said, God, I love my daughter Tamar so much, and my heart is so broken for her because what she went through. Help me, help me to let her know that she is still loved and that she is beautiful and she is your daughter and my daughter. Or he could have even said about Absalom, Absalom has killed his brother, which you know, but I know what your law says. God, help me to know what to do because I don't want to lose another son, but I know that your law is good and I know that your law is perfect and your law is right, but he is my son. 
God, what am I supposed to do at this point? But never once does David say anything like that at all. David, it's interesting, right? It makes you wonder if at this point, and I don't know if it's intentional. We can't say if it's intentional or not. But if we think about when David's younger, he inquires of God, and he desperately wants to do God's will, and he desperately wants to follow after God, where God's leading him. But then as an adult, right, he's starting to settle in. The kingdom is going great. He has tons of money. He has tons of land. He has tons of cattle. His army desecrates anybody that they come in contact with. Literally. Like, they put the smack down. God hands him every single victory. Maybe he didn't need God as much. I mean, do you really need God to help us? Does God care about our family life? Of course he does. Here's what I think is really interesting at this point. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon that we find in 1 Kings chapter 2. And I can't help but wonder that as David was on his deathbed, that he was looking back over his life and he was looking at all of the great stuff, but also the crappy stuff too. And he wanted to maybe be a father a great father for once in his life. So he gives his son Solomon this charge. And I took it from the message, so it's like in our everyday normal language. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, but you, be strong. Show what you're made of. Do what God tells you. Walk in the paths he shows you. Follow the life map absolutely. Keep an eye out for the signposts. His course for life set out in the revelation to Moses. Then you'll get on well in wherever, whatever you do and wherever you go. Then God will confirm what he promised me when he said, if your sons watch their steps, staying true to me, heart and soul, you'll always have a successor on Israel's throne. If only David had followed that advice when he was alive, I wonder how much differently his life would have been. David putting his relationship on the back burner with God shouldn't surprise us at all because we do the same thing. I submit a lot of us do. When things are going bad, we're constantly inquiring of God. Where should I go? What should I do? How should I get there? Help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. When things are good, we probably don't inquire of God as much as we ought to. For one reason or the other. I'm not saying that we turn our back on God, but maybe he's just, maybe we don't need the big vending machine in the sky at that point in time. So how do we heed David's advice that he gave to Solomon? How do we learn from this point in the story, this David inquiring of God, how do we fast forward? The the Bible is just as present and applicable today. So how do we take this story? I have four ways. They're simple. Did you you guys see what I did? I I have four ways. (laughs) I never said I was the smart one. I have four ways, and they're not fancy, they're nothing new, there shouldn't be anything that surprises you, especially the first one shouldn't surprise you at all. We can inquire about God and we can keep our connection with him and not put our relationship with him on the back burner by going to the word, right? If you want to inquire of God regarding his will and his plan, not just for us, but for everyone, we go to the word. It is the first and the best place to start. If your plan or what you want to do, or what you're thinking of doing, goes outside of God's word, guess what? It is absolutely not God's will, and do not even kid yourself in thinking that it is. There's no way you can spin it. So read your Bible, dig into the word, understand its teachings, and apply them to your life, like the Ten Commandments. 
basic place to start. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Honor your father and mother. Don't put any gods before me. There are also times, though, that God uses his word in ways um, that maybe aren't as direct as do not do this, do not do that. And what I mean by that is God will use stories and parables and things like that to speak to us. So we could be reading through the prodigal son or the parable of the Good Samaritan or when Joshua marched around Jericho so many times and we're reading this story and we know that God is speaking to us through his word, especially about a particular circumstance that we might be going through. Dig into God's word. Understand it. Apply it to your life. It is his love letter for us and it is as real and relevant and applicable today as it was 2,000 years ago. The second one is to listen for the Holy Spirit. If you have given yourself to Jesus, then the Holy Spirit resides in you. And one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to lead us and to guide us and to help us know what to do. And this happens in a couple of different ways. Sometimes we hear a still, soft voice. Sometimes we just know. We like to call it our gut. Maybe we call it intuition or whatever. If you're a Christian, it's the Holy Spirit that's living in you and he's telling you what to do. Um, sometimes when we're praying, the Spirit speaks to us and we kind of know which direction we need to go. Or other times, we have a strong passion or a desire to do something. And I came across this recently. Um, on Sunday morning, I was talking to Lynn Trichelle a couple of weeks ago about the Day of Hope. And if you don't know what the Day of Hope is, it is this awesome, awesome community event we do at Church of the Palms where we help some of the neediest students in Sarasota County start school on an even playing field by supporting them. We give them clothes and book bags and haircuts and all kinds of stuff. So we are starting to put together information for the day. Hope and Lynn is collecting her leadership team together. And it was Sunday morning and I said, hey Lynn, I make the PowerPoint announcement slide. If you got here on time, you would see it in the... He snickered, sorry. Um, so I'm putting the slide together, and I said, hey, Lynn, I said, I didn't know how many people we were going to try to help, how many kids we were going to serve for the Day of Hope this year. I said, so I just used um, last year's number. It was 150. And she said, it is so funny that you would say that, because this very morning, Pastor Bruce asked me the same question. What's our target number? And she said, before I even could think about it, the number from here flew out, and it was 250. And I was surprised, and Bruce was surprised, but I knew it was the number that God gave me. So church, get ready. We get to help 250 kids this year. It's awesome. But that's how, that's how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit works in ways like 10 years ago when I had been out on a Saturday night. I had been O-U-T, out, out. I was raised in my church. Parents got divorced. We moved down here. I didn't go to church as much. That's a different sermon, though. Um, (laughs) But I had been out the night before, and I woke up at 7 o'clock in the morning, and I knew God was telling me to go to church. I felt the Holy Spirit tell me that, and I'm like, you are a a wackadoodle. And I rolled over, and I went back to bed, and I sat up straight in bed at 8 o'clock in the morning. And I knew, and there are times when you hear that voice and you know what you are supposed to do. And you better not fight it anymore because it's going to keep coming one way or the other. And here I am today, ten years later. That's how the Holy Spirit works. Listen for his voice. Learn to recognize it. Learn to recognize it the same way you can answer your phone and without looking at the caller ID, you know who it is. Learn to recognize his voice the same way a mother who is at a playground with her kids hears her kids screaming above all the other kids and she knows where her kid is and what is up with her kid. Recognize that voice. The third, and I love this one, find good counsel. That's another way we can inquire of God. The book of Proverbs tells us to find good and wise counsel. 
If you don't already have somebody in your life who you trust, who will provide you with good, sagely, Christian, wise counsel, find someone. Find someone to bounce off the ideas that you have, maybe the direction that you want to go, maybe even what you're going through. Somebody that you know is going to tell you the truth. And there's a couple of caveats with this one, though. Don't keep asking until you hear the answer you want. Find someone who will be honest with you, even if it's not what you want to hear. And what I mean by that is if you have to ask 15 people what you should do because the first 14 have told you don't do it, just go and do it. You're going to anyway. Seriously. Don't try to justify it. You want someone who's going to be honest with you, even if it's not what you want to hear. And I know if I look at my life, I am so blessed that I have three men in my life. And they just happen to be guys. Um, But I have Pastor Joe, and I have Pastor Bruce, and I have Pastor Tim. That I know those men are godly and wonderful and good men. And when I come at them with something that is going on in my life or a question that I have, they're going to tell me the truth. Even if it's not something that I want to hear. But I cherish that type of a relationship with them. Find good counsel. Young people who are here this morning, find good counsel. The sooner you have somebody that you can talk to, the sooner that you have somebody that you can rely on, that's going to not like freak out at what you tell them, but help you take a step back and look, the better off you're going to be. And the last one also should not be a surprise. It's prayer. We can inquire of God. We can communicate with God, keep our relationship with him on the front burner instead of the back. Through our prayer life, prayer offers us the opportunity to praise and to worship God. It also offers us the opportunity to confess our sins, which should bring about repentance. But prayer also allows us to inquire and to ask of God about so many different things. It isn't just, you know, I want, when I was a little girl, I used to pray for the black stallion all the time. I never got the black stallion. But it does give us the chance to ask. We can ask for other things like wisdom and for discernment. Prayer is communicating with the Creator who is so intensely personal and He loves us and He wants to hear from us and He wants to hear from us so much so that He made a way for us to hear from Him. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Prayer is about communicating with the living, present, and active God who wants to know you and who wants to hear from you. And think about what happens. If you have an earthly relationship and you quit communicating with somebody, it suffers, right? Husbands and wives, when you guys stop talking to each other, you know something is up. It's the same way with God. Our relationship with our Creator is absolutely not any different. If we, stop to, if we stop communicating with him, our relationship with him suffers, and we in turn suffer. But we have to remember that it's a two-way street. Right? We have to be quiet, and we have to listen. And it's interesting, because I found this in my own prayer life. When I'm supposed to be quiet, the Holy Spirit tells me to be quiet, and that's hard, because I'm a talker, and I want to talk to God. But you have to be quiet and you have to listen because, as we learned in the book of James, we have God. And I remember this image. Remember Joe stands here and he's like, God is just waiting. He's hovering over all of us to give us wisdom generously and ungrudgingly. He's waiting. He's just waiting for us to ask. But then we also have to listen. Because we know that God wants us to inquire of him, 
He wants us to communicate with him. We can be absolutely confident in his response as well. David was confident. David was so confident in God's response that he said things like, the Lord who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. David who said things like, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have wrought all this greatness so that your servant may know him. David was confident that God would respond, and we can be confident that God will respond to us too. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. We never have to promise it's going to be easy, though. But God did great things for David, and he will do great things for us too. He'll do things that are greater than we could ever hope for. He'll lead us in ways that we never thought were possible. He's far above all we seek and all we know and all we hope. But we have to keep the communication stream open. We have to inquire of the Lord. We have to keep him present. We have to keep focused on him. We have to heed the advice that David gave to Solomon at the end of his life. Walk in his ways. Seek his face. I'm going to pray. If you'll pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for your son, first and foremost, who made a way for us to come to you, who made a way for us to be able to talk to you. We thank you that he loved us so, so much. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the gift of your word. We ask you this morning, we're going to inquire of you to send someone to us, a brother or a sister who will provide us with good counsel. And we're going to ask, Lord, that you help us communicate with you and that you help us be quiet when we need to be too. We thank you for this time together. God, I just ask a blessing for the people who are in this room today. May they leave this place with a renewed sense of wanting to know you more, wanting to stay in contact with you, and wanting to talk to you about everything, whether it's good or bad or mundane or ridiculous, that we think and we know it is okay to talk to you because it is. And thank you, God, that you love us so much that you made a way through that cross for us to be with you. In the name of your Son, who was and who is and who is to come, amen. Stand with us and sing this morning. Thank you.